right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie Wagner, my partner, as always, Charles W. Carpenter III, and our guest today, Chris Manson. Hey, how's it going? Hola. Going great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. So, yeah, today we have a special whiskey. I think you said this is close to where you live, Chris? Well, so this is close to where I, well, I say I was born. That's also a lie because a lot of the things that we say are, are tall tales in Ireland. But uh, I, I grew up in a place called, in a county Wicklow in Ireland. And mm-hmm. Glendalough is like one of the the biggest tourist attractions uh, in like this really idyllic like valley with two lakes in the middle of it and greenery and it's just it's just awesome but yeah so glendalock whiskey i've nice. i've not actually tried it i recommended it but i've not tried it <laughs> i think it's a good thing that you haven't tried it yet even though perhaps sacrilege being born in a town with which it is produced um but it's nice to be surprised upon here even though i don't always practice what i preach about that uh what is this logo uh it's uh it's a bit of uh, religious iconography and a bit of what seems to be a bit of pagan iconography as well. Like Ireland is a bit of a strange thing. It's like Celtic, you know, ancient history, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it was uh, very Catholic for a very long time. And uh, Glendalock, one of the things that they have there is like a, a round tower. And sometimes if you ever see like postcards of Ireland, you might see these round towers. But they were like places where in the 1600s or whenever the Vikings were doing their Viking things, all the, all the Catholics would be in their churches and they'd get into the round tower where the door was like six feet, 10 feet off the ground, and then they'd pull up the, the ladder. So it was like a defensive thing to save all their like golden goblets, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Glendalough is, it has a round tower, it has a church there, and et cetera, you know, it's kind of the one of the things that it's known for <laughs> the home of golden goblets <laughs> well ireland had a nickname the saint the I- island of saints and scholars hmm. all this kind of stuff interesting speaking of golden goblets i uh yet again haven't brought in a uh decent whiskey glass into the office and i i decided i did a tall water glass the last show i decided this time just a coffee cup i'm gonna make you a bit jealous yeah, because you probably got a Glen Clarin, I do have right? myself a little Glen Clarin. Although mine's a slightly different shape to yours. Oh, yours is the insulated one, isn't it? Yes. But I, the thing is, I brought that out to the office for your benefit, because I don't drink whiskey that way. I usually drink whiskey in a more of a tumbler with a nice good dollop of ice Same, in it. same. Chuck gives me a lot of crap for it, but, but that's, <laughs> that's what yeah. I do. Especially when you're trying one for the first time. The first time you've got to have it as mm-hmm. intended and then make your adjustments. Well, that's why you. I've got both glasses. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Do we have any idea on the mash bill of this? Percentage-wise, no. But it is, I think, just corn and malted barley, I believe. I know that y'all talk about this all the time. But I don't think I've ever heard of the phrase mash bill before your podcast. So hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I think there is usually a standard with Irish Educational. whiskey, like Irish whiskey is a thing, um, but I don't know what the yes. answer is. I don't know what that standard is. Yeah, I, I couldn't find the percentages. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's all right. But if you know a, a little bit about what's in there, and then maybe we'll have a guess after we try it. I just opened mine, by the way. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of you guys. You open it here. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, there it is. See, somebody else had I to get that. I haven't got the plastic off this one. Like, it's been hidden. I literally hid it in the back of the press because I need to translate for non-Irish people. A press, a press is a cupboard. Is a cupboard enough? Is oh. that, does that mean you're right? Yeah, okay. that's good. Yeah. No, I've got that. I've been there, you know, so I've, I've, I've heard the Irish slang. Um, yeah. But I never heard uh, yeah, the press. Yeah, like it's one of these ones where it's just so normal. We call them a cupboard. Is, we just call it the press. It's like, oh, get something out of the press there for me. Like, it's so normal that we don't, we often forget that other people don't call them presses. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go for the, the sound bite now. Let's see. Oh, there you go. That was solid. I'm impressed. So I'm, I have the back of the bottle facing me. The guy... On the front is oh, yeah. Saint Kevin, apparently. So there's a, it's like a cave up in the mountains uh, near Glendalough, where uh, Saint Kevin had like this retreat where he, I assume he lived for a long time, or he just kind of like was a, a a hermit for ages. And you can go visit that cave. It's a bit of a walk and a bit of a trek, but it's it's interesting. Interesting. What I like about Irish whiskey. Well, hold on. I had one other comment. Is Kevin not the least Irish name you've ever heard? Really? I don't know. Yeah, it seems like. <laughs> Caitlin's dad is Kevin and their family was Irish. Born in Ireland? At, at some point, someone was. He, he wasn't, but. Right. So, I mean, you know, given that name in America. Mm. My, my son's name is Aiden, spelled the Irish way. Mm, nice. Coming back to the whiskey. Um, what I like about Irish whiskeys is they have a smoothness to them. They are, like, oftentimes very smooth. Do you know why that is? Um, I would love to know why. I'm guessing with this one, this whole bourbon barrel aging slash sherry barrel finish. Well, so one of the things um, that used to be a definition of Irish whiskey, as in you couldn't call yourself Irish whiskey unless you did this, was it needed to be triple distilled. So that means that you... Sometimes don't get as much of the body, but you get the smoothness. So an Irish whiskey it was always dis- defined as being super smooth. And I tended to not like Irish whiskeys until recently, until they started doing more hmm. interesting Irish whiskeys. Because I like a I like a scotch. I like a I like to chew my whiskey. You know what I mean? I want to feel it. <laughs> I did just chew this whiskey so that I could get prepped for a proper taste. <laughs> No, we learned this. We were in Nashville a couple of weeks ago and went to a tasting of some Tennessee whiskey and they had us to chew it first. So basically just kind of move it around in your mouth a little bit mm. to get your tongue salivating. So you'd have a coating and then you don't have that burn kind of taking away from the other flavors. You know, that is smooth enough that I would probably be happy to continue with that neat in the Glencairn glass. Yeah, it's oh, it's, yeah. it's real good. I uh, I like it quite a bit. It's a little bit like... I don't know, there's that tealing that's rum barrel mm. finished. A little bit like that, but actually more robust for me. It has more flavor than that. Not just smooth like that, but it has... I'm getting a little, like, charry bit. I don't know if that's the bourbon barrels part of it. It's a little caramel. Yeah, I'm not getting a lot of char. It's mostly sweet for me. Mm. I'm, I don't have a really defined palate, so I can't tell you the notes, but... 
Everybody's making it up. You just pretend like you know. I think uh, some dried figs. Mm. Uh, yeah. There's um, there's a... I, w- I was thinking apricots, but then you went fig and now no. I feel fig. There's a, there's a book that I desperately want to get um, that is like trying to teach you some of the, the different tasting and smelling like terminology, the, the words that you should be using. And it's like the scratch and sniff guide to whiskey. <laughs> it like it sounds like a joke but like i i've heard people who like wine tasting and whiskey tasting like really recommend this thing because if you just have no idea what you're looking for and you don't have any way to like in an isolated way identify flavors and smells then you're lost you know yeah you just need a shared vernacular right that's what any language is so it makes sense otherwise you are just kind of making it up yeah Oh, I'm glad that's good, actually. The whiskey from my home county was going to be like one of those, oh, no, I'm going to give away the rest of this bottle uh, situations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be so sad. And it would really be a negative turn for the rest of the show, I think. <laughs> yeah. We're like, what have you done to us? Yeah. And the worst thing for me is I wouldn't have anything to, to replace it with. This is the only whiskey in the house right now. Yeah, for me, I think this is probably one of the most drinkable whiskeys we've tried. Like, I guess not being full bourbon, it's kind of like, maybe it's a little less proof too, but it's like, I could drink this whole bottle in like a sitting. Like I, I shouldn't, but yeah. Um, you're going to, you're going to regret that uh, either tonight or the next morning for sure. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I will agree with that though. I think that um, in the Irish whiskey category, I would say that this is one of the more flavorful ones. That is like a thing that I typically have with Irish whiskeys that can be a little too light, yep. a little too yep. smooth, a little like too easy. And, and this one is a bit more robust for me. Um, even though it is like light proof, it, it still has, like it hangs for a little bit. So I mm-hmm. enjoy it. I'm going to, I'm going to go first, but Chris, I don't know if you've been informed of the tentacle scale. I'm a, I'm a long time listener, first time caller. So I am aware of the tentacle scale. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the tone here and I'm going to give this a, a seven. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the, yeah. I, I've had a decent amount. This is definitely within top five Irish whiskeys I've had. Nice. I, I think I would agree. I think... I was thinking maybe six, but I think I could go up to a seven. Honestly, it's it's pretty good. So we'll we'll say seven. I'm it's very similar to you, Robbie. I would probably, on the face of it, give this a six, but I'm gonna I'm gonna roll up to a seven because I'm gonna put this right at the top of my Irish whiskeys. Like this is my favorite yeah. Irish whiskey. Full stop. Now, mm. the thing is, you can't give it an eight because you know Ireland is quite close to Scotland. And I have been to Edinburgh and <laughs> I have tasted the fruits of the, like just scotch everywhere. And there are, there are better whiskeys mm. out there. So yeah, it can't, it can't get the eight. I agree with that. Have you been to the wee old motherland of Kentucky? I have not. I have not. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, so that's where I was born and I do have an affinity for bourbons. Some rise. I, I, I definitely enjoy some rise. I don't know. I've had a lot of scotches and I, it's, it's not for me. I like some Macallans. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty drinkable to me. But yeah, they get a little, you know, like I feel like maybe it's good, though, because like I have one and I'm like, OK, yeah. 
I'm good there. I can't really keep going with this through the night for me because it just tends to be like very overpowering mm-hmm. and lingers for a while. Japanese whiskeys, though, some of those can definitely have like some of that power, but then like not, I don't know, strong. But anyway, this is all subjective, but I'm, I'm coming around to agreeing with you really <laughs> is that like I'm, I, my preferences are in more the, the the bourbon area. And but for this, it's like it stands strong. I think for scotches, like there's so many different possible flavors. So like the ones that people usually like scotch drinkers, scotches are not for me, but like there are a lot of scotches that I do like. I've done like a scotch flight thinking I wouldn't like any of them and I liked most of them. So like there's just those, the really peaty, really like, you know, tastes like a Sharpie style ones. Those are not for me, but like the others, there's a lot of different flavors that can be in there. Um, I like most of them. So. So uh, you say about having a flight, like my, my best whiskey experience was uh, a birthday that my wife organized, which was a weekend in Edinburgh. Like we were living in the north of England and we just got the train up and we went to the hotel, went to like the first bar, fly to whiskey. And then it was just that over and over again. And the menus <laughs> in Edinburgh are like, they're like eight pages long. With like small writing, like you can try everything and oh, it was, it was incredible. I can't remember half of them. (laughs) Wrap up if you're going in January though, it is mighty cold. Yeah. I think I was there in like October or something and it was still cold for me, but I live in the desert. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was like, people thought I was weird, but that's okay. Yeah. So I guess, um. I didn't really plan any specific tech topics for this <laughs> podcast, but I figured um, we could do kind of the the standard Embry stuff, like you know how. Tell us a little bit about how you first like learned about Ember and, and got into it. Oh, well, if that's the if that's the way to start, we should have uh, organized this uh, this podcast recording for about two or three weeks' time. Because in two or three weeks, it's going to be my 10-year anniversary of using Ember. Mm. So I started in December 2011 as a a table flip uh, moment when I was two months into writing my startup. Like, I was the the technical founder. I had to build the thing for the first... um, the first prototype, the first thing to show investors, et cetera, et cetera. And I had built it in Angular before Angular 1.0 came out. <laughs> and it was it was bananas. And I wasn't even a very good developer back then. Like I had no business being the technical founder of a, of a company at that stage. And uh, I, just, I just couldn't take it anymore. Like when you did a production build back then, they hadn't ironed out all the problems. And the way that their dependency injection worked was string based, but then like it would change the names of the variables and then suddenly things wouldn't like inject in the right way because the name of the thing changed. And it's like, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I table flipped, rewrote the whole thing in a few weeks in Ember and it's been great ever since really. Nice. Yeah. You you got me beat by Probably like six months or so. I forget when I started, but it was in uh, 2012 sometime was my my first Ember. So that would have still been pre-1.0 though, wouldn't it? That was like early 2012. Yeah, it was either pre-1 or like 1 had just right. come out. I, f- I forget. But it was, yeah, it was pretty early. Yeah. 
I was there for the uh, state machine router. So uh, I think that came out. Mm. Well, it started with a state machine router. And then in January 2012 was when Alex Machner, I think it was like, just was like, what are we doing? Let's do this properly. And he just like replaced the whole thing right before 1.0. And it was just like, it was great beforehand. A little bit of like, you know, wrangling to get it to do what you wanted it to do. But afterwards, it was just, it was leagues ahead of anything else that was out there. It was just fantastic. Yeah, that's one thing that no one else has really done well. I guess we're starting to get good router implementations, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like React. It's like, we don't care, you know, do whatever you want. And like, there's a lot of that. And that's a fundamental part of having an app, right? Like you got to transition somehow. So yeah, I don't understand how there aren't more, but. It's, it's surprising to me doing this for 10 years and like starting your app thinking about routes. So oh, routes, sorry, I need to also translate here. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm going to say roots plenty of times here if that's what we're talking about. No, it's fine. <laughs> Plus, we have many international listeners. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so thinking about your app, like, oh, what is the route going to be? And just not having to think about, is this going to be, like, can you share a link to this thing? It's just like, not, not something that you have to think about implementing. If you just do it the quote unquote Ember way, it works the way that you expect it to work. And it's bananas that 10 years later, there are still apps that I come across that are like, oh, look at my new fancy app. And it breaks the router. It breaks links. You can't right click things and open a new tab. It's just, it's bananas. <laughs> it's crazy. So have you been using Ember only for that entire time? Or did you ever like use anything else? I've, I've dabbled in other things. Um, at various points, but like for five years, starting uh, 2011, I was uh, building my startup, which was Ember in the front end, Node in the back end. So it was JavaScript all the way. I, I skipped to the whole Ruby on Rails thing. If somebody showed me a Rails app, I wouldn't really know what to do. I could poke around at it, but it's like, where does this function come from? I have no idea. It's It's just impossible. That was kind of when I was the one deciding that's what I was doing. And then when that uh, startup uh, ended, like most startups do, I started doing the consulting thing. And we were like trying to do a full service, like we'll build your app for you. We'll, you know, start up in a box, give us X amount of dollars, euros, pounds, whatever the case may be. And we'll will do the MVP for you really quickly because with Ember, you can do MVPs incredibly quickly. You can get like actual, mm -hmm. not just MVPs as demos, but like first versions of people's apps out the door so fast. And so we were doing that for a while. And then as the internet is the internet, uh, I had a few consulting situations where it's like, oh no, we've got a React native thing that is not working the way that we wanted to. You go in, you figure out that they had no idea of a router at all. And they loaded like hundreds of megabytes of data on the first load of this mobile app. And it's like, oh, for God's sake, what are you doing? <laughs> and then just kind of trying to bring a few Ember ideas to like these React apps or Vue apps that I've kind of come across. But other than that, it's been 
I would say 90% plus the time I've been doing Ember, which is awesome. It's like, I know that I'm incredibly lucky yeah. to not have to jump out of this field. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've had some dark days. I had to do some <laughs> Angular for a year or two and uh, came. That was kind of before I started really like being in the Ember community. Like I was using Ember, but I wasn't making add-ons or like contributing back. And so I wasn't, you know, hooked yet, I guess. And so I did Angular for like a year or two. and was like, this is terrible. I do not like this. <laughs> and so I just ran back to Ember and uh, yeah, I haven't looked back ever since then. So uh, I, I know you have, I don't know how many, how, how many add-ons would you say you have? Oh, I have too many add-ons. Oh God. <laughs> So I was talking at Emberfest and I did a little bit of conference-driven development. So I wanted to talk about something that was kind of slightly conceptual that I hadn't actually finished 100%. And uh, I started my con conference-driven development with 170 repos on my GitHub. And I finished with 180 five, I think it was. So like, I tend to invent things a little bit too often. And like, if that can be a separate repo, I'll just do it. I just, you know, because it's easy to start a new add on. Let's just do it. Why not? And it's like, I could see the number ticking up in the like hours preceding his conference talk. It just gets ridiculous sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea how many I have. Because you lose track, right? Because you get like rights to other people's and they don't necessarily transfer it to you. And I don't know, but it seems like every add-on, like at least half of the like top 100, like I'm sure both of us have pushed rights. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit funny when you get like push rights to a new thing and then you just quickly check the NPM downloads and it's like, oh, 20,000 downloads a week. <laughs> and they become like additional children to you as well. They have needs. Yeah. They need constant supervision and growth and care. They need embroider support. Oh god, don't get me started. Ember <laughs> <laughs> ever Ember 4.0 support, you know, the 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 newest thing. But there it's interesting that you say that like yes, they need they have needs and like there's a point at which it gets too much. You can't keep everything up to date. But there are coping mechanisms that you can implement to like, instead of it being like, I need to spend two hours effort multiplied by 185, you can spend three hours effort and then like duplicate that everywhere. So one thing that I've been implementing for all of my add-ons recently is automatic changelog generation based on pull requests. So you can just do npm run changelog and it like pulls in the list of merge requests, gets the detail of who the GitHub repo, the Git, GitHub username is that actually did the work. And like, it just adds a line. And that saves like, what, half an hour, 20 minutes, multiplied by 185, that starts to, starts to add up, you know? Yeah, definitely. Are you using a Lerna changelog for that? Lerna changelog is, and it, it is in an interesting bucket in my brain where it's, it seems quite close to this um, oh, conventional commits. Is that what it's called? Yeah, where you do like fix colon. And it, it, has, it has a requirement on either the people who are, you know, producing the 
the change, the PR, or people who are maintaining the repo, that they have to do something correctly or else it doesn't work. So if you don't add the labels or if you don't do the setup yeah. correctly or whatever, somebody else who's doing a who's doing a release might get it wrong. So then you have to decide whether you put up, yeah, no, this is an interesting thing because it's, it's actually a, a problem that I've had to address, not in open source, but in a... So when like managing teams across time zones and deciding, oh, there you go, good call. Uh, and then deciding like a shared way of working, but then enforcing that shared way of working. So is that really good, you know, culturally or whatnot? But so you can utilize like commit, pre-commit hooks and then do things with like Husky to enforce those kinds of messages. So then it will say, oh, you try to type this in, you have to do it this way. Computers will like kind of annoy you and make you do a thing. Is that going to like dissuade you from contributing? Yeah. I don't know, hard to say, but there are things like that. So this is the thing. So I can understand Husky as a decision that a company would make. Mm -hmm. Like I want my globally distributed team to enforce these rules and we know that they're not going to read the employee handbook on how to set up all the things so let's just let's do the right thing and make it like a lint thing at the commit level like it's the right thing to do if that's what you need but you cannot do that in an open source world because you have to imagine this like essentially a junior and this is one of the things that I, 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 I get on my high horse and my soapbox very, very often when this comes up. You have a junior that's learning how to do JavaScript, maybe knows a little bit of HTML. They see a change in your repo. They're like, oh, that's the wrong color. I can change that. And every single barrier that you put up between them deciding that they want to make that change and making that change like increases the bounce rate tenfold. You know what I mean? It's this this drop-off rate. And we as experts, as seniors, I'm assuming you're both seniors, you know? I am 44, I'm old. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, <laughs> but we have to make sure that we don't pull up the ladder from the work that we're doing. And this is kind of back to, you know, dumping on React for a second. This is one of the things that I don't like about uh, repos or, or, or projects where you get to make a thousand decisions because new people who don't know the decisions that you made, don't know the structure of your app, don't know the structure of your repo, go into your repo and go, this is too complicated, bounce and don't contribute. And that's not okay for me. Yeah. I've had many heated discussions with people in the Ember community and I won't name names, but like, for example, if you go to a repo and everything uses like four spaces instead of two, right? So the blueprints are going to generate two spaces. So anytime yep. you want to update it, you're going to have problems. And then like, oh, we also want to like not have any semicolons or like, you know, things that aren't in the blueprints and not, not in like yep. the default prettier configs. And you have to override all this stuff. And why? Like, if you want people to contribute, just use the defaults. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that hard. Yeah. Subjectivity is... It's a big issue. And yeah, I completely agree with you, Chris. Like if you want new people to get involved in open source, which helps them become better, which helps them like see 
all kinds of different patterns and ways of solving problems within it don't make the very basic things super hard for them. And that's the, the altruistic way of communicating it. But you can think about it in an entirely selfish way as well. Like, okay, make it easier for them so that they can learn. But if they're going to contribute to your repos, make it as easy as possible for them to do the work that you don't have time to do. Like, it's, it's a <laughs> yeah. no-brainer from my perspective. And I don't... Right. It's, it, it's so bizarre to me that this is even a conversation that I need to have with people. And like, I don't get it. I don't get why it's not the first thing that everybody in the world is trying to optimize. But I guess it's, you know, people lose track. And I think, I think maybe this is my um, experience on the Ember Learning Team, and Robbie will attest to this as well. The amount of times that we get people who are actual juniors bouncing against something that you've built and then you realize, oh, actually, I did build that in a kind of complex way. I shouldn't have. And then you internalize that. And next time it comes across, you go like, I could do this fancy, save 10 lines of code, or I can be verbose and simple. Always pick verbose and simple next time around. All right. Yeah, I guess continuing on the topic of add-ons and different things you've been working on. Um, I know both of us, it's been years now, I guess, since we were kind of collaborating on like Primber and static site things. Um, but I know you've talked a lot about Jamstack in general and in, in talks and just all the time. But um, yeah, like what are you what are you working on on now, I guess, and so in terms of that stuff? It's interesting because there's two like ends of the spectrum that I'm working on at the moment when it comes to Jamstack. There's the normal kind of static site generation, SEO, you know, Ember Meta kind of implementation of something. But then there's like a weird side thing that has taken a lot of my time recently. Um, so I'll start with the normal one and then we'll go weird later. But actually it's interesting because this overlaps with something that you've done a lot of work with as well, Robbie. Ember CLI add-in docs. I have a bit of a vendetta where I want to make that go away as quickly as possible. <laughs> Yes. It's a, it's a love-hate relationship. I keep it around because I'm too lazy to convert to anything else. So I'm interested to hear more about, like, I saw something where you had, like, a converter, like, automated thing. So I'm, I'm working on a converter at the moment. So uh, I've been doing this thing recently where I live stream some open source development that I do on a Thursday morning, which is kind of awesome you know, again, super privileged to be able to do that because I work for a company called Simplabs here in Europe and they do like a 20% time thing. So I get one day a week where I can work in open source, contribute back to the Ember community. And I'd been doing some live streaming stuff with Jen Weber starting a few years ago, doing a bit of uh, coding with Mel Sumner and like various things. And I was like, do you know what? This year, I'm going to take it a bit more seriously. I'm just going to do it every Thursday morning. It's literally the worst possible time that I could stream because all of America is asleep. And that's where all of the Twitch viewers are. But, you know, <laughs> I get to code in the open uh, with a, a bunch of early riser Americans and uh, Europeans and like people from Australia actually uh, joining in. And the, the thing that I've been working on recently is this 
Ember CLI add-on docs migrator to a field guide. Started it started life as a an Empress project, which is just you know Jamstack stuff where you you write Markdown and it generates a site for you. Um, it started life as a like a style guide generator um, because Ember CLI add-on docs had this huge problem where it was using Tailwind, and if you were writing an add-on that you wanted to document using Ember CLI add-on docs. The tailwind styles would bleed into the components that you were trying to document, and your documentation site wasn't a valid representation of what the component would look like in your app as you consume it. And like, I'm pretty sure that's like one of the number right. one open issues that has prop- popped up a thousand times uh, in the add-on docs uh, repo. Fast boot is probably the biggest problem. Well, yeah, like, and I'm sure you're you're going to get to that. But without you know server side and or static rendering, you're not going to get any SEO. And like, I don't know. That's that's a really that's probably one of the huge hindrances, which I'm not helping for the Ember community. You know, keeping add-on docs yeah. alive makes us have less. Ember that's things. exactly the the main reason for my vendetta against it. And it's not like. It's not like one of these situations where it's like not invented here. I don't want to help Ember CLI add-on docs to fix itself. But there were a bunch of decisions made very early on to like take over the router and do like this weird hack that is like the, the GitHub 404 JavaScript hack thing. If anybody, any of the listeners want to play along with this little game, go to any Ember CLI add-on docs website, including the Ember CLI add-on docs documentation itself, and view source. And then you'll see this incredible JavaScript, like just script in the HTML, not a linking to a script. That's like, this is a hack. Don't do this. This is like, just so that GitHub pages will render this properly, blah, 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 blah. And you'll see this as well sometimes if you're refreshing uh, an, an app built with Ember CLI add-on docs where the URL flickers just as you as you refresh because it does it hits this 404 and then goes back to the the root in the Ember app. It's really weird stuff. Mm. And like we could fix that maybe, but the amount of effort to get that into a place where it's not doing weird stuff and then bring everybody along with you is is probably more than just writing this migrator thing to field guide which is like has a few different um architectural decisions that make it a little bit simpler like first thing is that it just writes markdown you don't have to build this weird application with weird components that refer to uh, code snippets that can self-execute, etc. To do like a self-executing code snippet in Field Guide, you just do a, a markdown code block and make sure the language is handlebars. And then it just executes it with the demo on the top and the code on the bottom. And that is actually nice. in the HTML when you view source. Nice. Yeah, I haven't I haven't tried it out. So so the thing that I'm working on at the moment is a migrator. So like because of the fact that the way that Ember CLI add-on docs is built, it's like it gives so much power to the user. Like 
it's going to be impossible to get everybody all the way there, but we can get most people most of the way there. And to make it an easier transition, I built a field guide template because Empress has this whole idea of like having like a core add-on that's the the brains of the thing that it's doing and doing the markdown conversion, etc. And then having a template that you can just swap out. So I built a template that's actually a fork of Ember CLI add-on docs. So when you migrate, your docs doesn't change the style. So you can in the future, and we will provide some other templates, but like it, when somebody's trying to decide, should I migrate? I don't want them to also have to deal with a style change at the same time. Like make, make there fewer variables. Right. Make it as seamless as possible. And then. Exactly. And then once they've converted everything over to field guide, the, the act to change the template is literally replacing one NPM package because Empress templates are just ember add-ons nice so um in terms of like the the static um generation and things so we've had you know both uh, both you and i have had a lot of issues with embroider and ember 4 i think primber itself doesn't support one or both of those is that correct so it's an interesting one we we're in an interesting transition with ember right now 2021 everybody's kind of a bit on edge because we've had a difficult year. But there are three changes in the Ember community that are massive, massive changes that will affect everybody. The first one has already happened, and we've had a little bit of fallout from and things stopped working, where I think it was in 327, maybe 326, around that time, we released the first Ember that had real modules in it. Up until then, we were doing weird, funny background stuff that whenever you saw import blah from at Ember, blah, 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 all it was doing was rewriting to the global Ember namespace. Like it was doing, you know, just Babel transform, Ember dot whatever, you know, easy, easy. But we are now real modules all the way. And things broke. Things got mislaid and like, oh, that import doesn't work anymore. But what it, it, it was fine five seconds ago. But anyway, the second thing is uh, Ember 4, which is big. And, you know, that's, there's plenty of problems around that. And, you know, the fact that we're now in real modules, that means we need to do the Ember auto import V2 for Ember 4.0. And that's going to break a whole bunch of things. And add-on authors are all weeping every day nowadays. But embroider is the thing that most people talk about. But embroider is not currently on the cards to be released at any time. There's no due date for embroider. So people are breaking their backs trying to fix their things for embroider, even though it's not actually going to be released anytime soon. Well, the embroider safe and optimized Ember try scenarios were added to the blueprint, I think is what caused that. Because I've been fighting that like all of my add-ons broke. And then I've been fixing add-ons, which depend on add-ons, which depend on add-ons, which like, and you just can't fix them all. Like, I, <laughs> And then when I find one that I can't fix, like Ember get config, you now own that and are like working on fixing that. So, you know, 
This is something that happens in the Ember community that doesn't happen anywhere else. We have this blueprint idea that we also have an upgrade system that most people use to upgrade between versions that includes changes to the blueprints. Like, it's fantastic. It's, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time because whatever goes in that blueprint suddenly becomes 100% of the zeitgeist. And something that I've been uh, playing with a, a bit recently with my add-ons is the fact that my Ember betas stopped working for some apparent reason. And you look at the, the, the fail and it's like the most obscure error that you have ever seen in your life. Because what happens in Ember, um, both of you know this already, I'm just repeating it for people who are, might be listening who don't know how it works for a major release in Ember. There's no new features in Ember. The only thing that happens is we delete all the deprecated code. So if there was a deprecation added in 3x, any 3 version, maybe maybe not the last few, but I don't know exact rules around that, but any of those deprecations are just deleted from the code, which means you get weird errors when you're running beta because the code that you were using has suddenly been deleted and you have, there's nothing in there to tell you you're doing the wrong thing because the deprecation has been removed. So I have another invention. This is why I have too many repos where uh, I have a, something that hooks into the deprecation process, similar right. to the Ember deprecation workflow add-on that throws an error with the deprecation message. That's all it does. It's like a tiny little uh, add-on. But you can add it as an Ember try scenario because you can add new dependencies in Ember try scenarios and you can get a fail for deprecations with the deprecation message instead of the random, you know, your code has been deleted, good luck thing. And that has been invaluable for me converting my add-ons to work in Ember 4. Mm. But like, nice. back to the point, why isn't that in the blueprints? Why didn't we think to add that to the blueprints? Why are we doing embroider stuff? The crazy thing is that it, it's now never going to be in the 3X series. This is only something that can fix it in the future because it's too late to add it back into 328 as a, as a, a blueprint update. Um, and not only that, the reason I haven't opened the PR yet is because some of those deprecations don't work with the deprecation workflow. Right. Because they either are being called earlier than it's registered or they're not real deprecations. Like they look like it in the, in the, in the console output, but they're just console logs essentially. So they, they're not caught. So I have my deprecation workflow uh, Ember try scenario passing in some cases, but Ember beta is still failing or now Ember release. Does it have to be perfect before you fix 80% of the problems though? Most of the time I wouldn't say that it needs to be perfect, but one of the things that's not caught is the big Ember global deprecation. So Ember globals have been removed and that's the thing that most add-ons are going to hit. So if I'm releasing this thing, it's like, this is going to solve all your problems, but it doesn't solve the most common problem because that, that thing sidesteps the deprecation workflow. 
yeah, what do I do? But you have a use case to target now. Now you have a use case to yeah. target. I, I opened an issue to kind of like explain all this, but like, oh, God loved the, the framework team. They are firefighting. I want to regress a little bit back to the Jamstack because like recently with Next 12, they announced themselves as the SDK for the web. And that's a big part of the Jamstack. Did you know that? Did you see that whole thing? So they're using like that. SWC as their compiler and they're like doing all this hotness. Yeah. So Rust does all, Rust powers all of the generation of things and then they serve it in beautiful JavaScript. So I've, I've seen a lot of the bits and pieces that they've done, but I've not seen a lot of that marketing. And, you know, this is one of the things that Robbie will know that I kind of bang the drum about in a lot of the learning team things is that, you know, we are a ragtag group of, you know, people who like an open source framework and we don't have anybody. There is not a single person on the planet employed to be a Ember evangelist or a, what's the word? The advocate, developer advocate. Yeah, developer right. advocate, evangelist. That's, you know, it all kind of ticks the same boxes. But it is very interesting because so many of these progressions are inspired by things that are so Ember centric. Exactly. Um, yeah, having those like smart guardrails is, is a big thing. Yeah. And companies like Vercel leaned into react because hey everybody's doing it let's just give them some rules let's make it fast let's make it a little smarter as we deploy it let's create routes as serverless functions to make them fast and then take out a bunch of the decision making and and thinking there the mad thing about that as well is like you know when when that was announced for the next next (laughs) js um, Mm -hmm. and they were talking about it in the beta stages um, I'm part of the Fastboot working group in Ember, which is a little bit uh, not very active recently because most of the people who work on it are working on Ember 4.0 and are too busy <laughs> to come together once a week. AKA Robert Jackson. AKA Robert Jackson. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I'm not, like, if he's listening to this, I'm not even calling him out. That man is a, he's a warrior. <laughs> and the stuff oh, yeah. that we, we all We all know that. Yeah. So many more oh, yeah. commits than the next 10 people I know in life. Yeah. Yes. Like there are st- can't give that guy enough money. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like you really there, would think seriously, he's so, so much stuff that wouldn't happen. And like, I, 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 it's great when I get a chance to pick his brain because he gets into these meetings and he's like, right. And I ask one question and he goes, no, that's the wrong question. You should have thought about this, 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 and this. And I'm like frantically writing down the things that he's saying. <laughs> just, just change the line here. And he points like in five seconds to this line that I have no idea what it does, but you get blame it. It's Robert Jackson that wrote it. It's like, you know, and he has so much knowledge. And with one little nudge can push almost anybody to just get over the hump to do a thing. And it's like, oh, it's fantastic if you ever get the chance to just pair with him or like hop in a meeting with him. On that note, we were talking about, you know, Next.js and all this fancy stuff that they were doing. And Robert Jackson was like, oh, we could do that. And like the architecture of Fastboot, which is what, six years old now, five years old now? 
lends itself with a very small adjustment to be edge like rooted whatever the thing they call this like have fast boot on the edge with like 5 hours worth of work but we just don't have somebody who could do that we got to make a serverless component so the serverless framework has a component abstract to it and where that's basically you can use serverless to deploy nextjs outside of vercel right so yeah. same thing you just need to latch onto the same thing but this, but this is the thing like right now the way that fastboot is working and we're we're also trying to improve it in general but like if you were to run fastboot in a node environment and not do a prember pre-rendering things you have to you have to boot uh, this node app long running node app that is uh, a cluster that has workers that has all these things like yeah. managed for you and managed really well nowadays with this new architecture that we're going to thanks to uh Scott Newcomer, is that his name? Mm -hmm. uh, he's doing like a fantastic work thinking about the future of this hosted node thingamajig if he wanted to run uh, Fastboot. But as I can see, you're shaking your head. We don't need that to be an edge worker. You need the bit in the middle. And it mm -hmm. needs to just do that one thing as quickly as possible and get out of there. You know? <laughs> and can work that way with just a very small tweak of the architecture using something that's already written, but we just don't have that five hours to, and we don't have a developer evangelist or a developer advocate that's, that's whose job it is to convince people who are looking at edge something, something and serverless something, something to try Ember, who would implement that feature to convince a thousand new people to try Ember for the first time. It's a challenge that a community-driven project like Ember will always kind of face. Yeah, I mean, aside from like Vercel partnering with us, which they could since they're hiring Rich Harris to do Svelte stuff, yes. you know, React is basically dead now. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> I think we heard it in Slack first, but I mean, I think I guess we audibly <laughs> hear it now first. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing to say, basically looking at Next.js and saying that their view layer is React and they are all about performance. So if they change the view layer, because I mean, the, that's always the interesting part of the conversation is this, is that we talk about React versus Ember and it's Apple, it's not apples to apples, right? No, like React not. is a very small slice of that, exactly. Yeah. And so all the other things, like you were saying earlier, Chris, is that you ought to think about and make decisions upon. And 50,000 people have made separate decisions, like yeah. which one's the right one, where every single project you go to is completely different. So saying that like Next.js is doing React now, and maybe they'll do Svelte in the future, like that's very possible. Because the architecture that they have in their framework is to set it up as lambdas or whatever serverless functions you're deploying to. That's their intent. It's interesting because when it comes to the others, like you have Ember and you have the others, a lot of the other frameworks, libraries, like view libraries, work on this idea of this, is the shadow DOM or the virtual DOM? Virtual DOM, the like- Virtual DOM, yeah. <laughs> are you in the DOM or are you uh, in, a, in a state layer? So it is different. <laughs> so yeah, you, yeah, have this, yeah. you have this virtual DOM that's like, the DOM's slow. Let's let's not ever touch it. Let's like you know. Let's do our things 
one way, Ember took a very different perspective. We have this Glimmer compiler that builds the most efficient program. Every template that you build is a little program. It's two little programs, the creation program and the update program that updates the DOM in the most efficient possible way. And like you have these two, you have these two worlds, like which one's right? Like, how are we ever going to know which one's right? And thankfully, LinkedIn did a, a whole project. They did a massive white paper where they, they compared a huge part of their timeline. They built it in React, like hella, like built it out and made it like super awesome. They also built it in Glimmer and they compared the performance of both of them. And it was a dead heat. Surely you could probably improve either of them a little bit, but like with some of the experiments that have already happened in Glimmer, there's easy wins to make Glimmer much faster. So like the answer is quite clear. React is not the most performant. It's like in best case equal to Glimmer, worst case, probably a bit slower. Yeah. And what's the cool. Yeah. Wasn't that one of uh, Tom's articles? I think it might have been Tom yeah. working on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think he uh, he did like a talk somewhere on it, I thought. Like a, a general JS thing, not like an Ember-specific thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate here, having been in corporate settings, having to like evaluate some of these things and having to fight these fights, to be honest, mm-hmm. like within an organization. And even if it, makes the most sense in those ways. Sometimes it comes down to we've been trying to hire an Ember person for six months, a year or whatever else. I'm about to lose the slot. What can I do? Can I, I can teach someone into that, but guess what? My senior just left and now my choices are this and I can hire a senior person in react. And I think that's oftentimes how it becomes easier. So this is an interesting question, and it was actually addressed by Ed Faulkner at Emberfest in one of the, I can't remember if it was one of the question and A panels or one of the ones where he was just on his own. You can have senior React people, and I'm telling you now, there are more senior React people in the world than there are senior Ember people. Full stop. There's no argument. No but argument. But a intermediate Ember person? can do more than a senior React person. I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. But let me give you two counterpoints to that. Two things. First of all, the definition of senior has become a very blurred line over the last few years because, you know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, right? It took me a pretty long time to like hit that milestone. At this time, people are hitting that milestone two, three years easily. It's happening quite often. You'll bounce one or two jobs, you become senior. And then you go through a coding interview and hopefully, you know, you're, you're understanding fundamentals enough. So that's one facet of it. So even finding an intermediate Ember person is as expensive or if not more than your senior React person. So then you're like fighting HR pay bans too. So you have twofold is that someone has a title walking in the door, even though they might not necessarily have the qualifications. So if you're an engineering leader and you are leaning on a enterprise pipeline, your HR people, your recruiters that you, you really, you give them your, what you're looking for and they'll set those parameters and bring you a pipeline. 
And a lot of times you're going to end up with people with less than five years, but they're still senior. Probably they can go through some like fundamentals, hopefully. And then the second side of that is that most of them have React experience, not Ember. Trying to find an Ember specific person. And when you, if you go out and like, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go into the Ember Discord. I'm going to list some jobs and try and get some candidates and stuff. But guess what? They're pretty expensive still because yeah, they can get job sure. offers at LinkedIn, at Apple, at you know some other huge places who also are in the same pool. And then the pay bands are very different. But it's it, we're, we're already having a conversation about very different things. Like, I am not surprised that after two, three years, somebody could be, can, could be described as a senior React developer because React is incredibly small. You could know everything about the APIs of React very quickly and have a bit of experience and become a senior React person. But that's not the same as somebody building an app from start to finish and deploying it and scaling it, etc. Because React doesn't do everything. It's not the same thing. It's the view library. So getting a senior React person is not the same as an intermediate Ember person because to become an intermediate Ember person, again, depending on your definitions of intermediate, I would happen to define it as somebody who can kind of do a little bit of everything that's in the guides, in Ember guides. So like the, the, the well-worn path, etc maybe not super expert and maybe knows a little bit about the history. So could update older things to the new things and knows where to look to find like the, the, the rest of it. But have you looked at the Ember guides recently? The amount of stuff that they have in there is insane. Like it's a full ORM when you get into the Ember data thing. Like you have a full section on deployment. You have a full section application life cycles. You have ideas about tracking in-depth uh, articles about state management and how it changes and what it does all in the guides. So literally, if you put a junior JavaScript developer that's never had framework experience and get them to read every word of the guides and go through the tutorials, the Ember guides and tutorials, they are going to know more about how to get an application from zero to production than somebody who has only done React. I mean, yeah. amen. You don't have to convince me here, but in the real life market, it's just, it's really hard. You essentially have to be able to. So this is the thing. We've, we have that same problem in, in Europe as well. And every time it comes up, people like Simplabs, we are asked these questions, you know, we are brought in to help with the kind of more complex things. But the scenario is everybody is just hiring JavaScript people. They have some reactive experience. They have some view experience, maybe, but maybe they're just juniors. And they get up to speed very quickly. Because as I said, if you read the guides, not only do you have a much more well-rounded experience of all the things that are necessary to build an app from scratch and get it into production, you know how the app that you're going to be working in is structured because they're all structured the same. You can pick an Ember developer up from one team and drop them in another and they'll be productive on day one. So because of that, the guides not only teach you how to do Ember, they teach you how to do the app that you're building in Ember, which you just do not get in a React world. So every client that we've worked with that have given up the 
I need a senior Ember developer and just get JavaScript developers of every seniority. They've all had an amazing experience with one caveat. You need to have a senior available for reference. The thing that happens in Ember is that you get to a point where something weird has happened or you're doing something that your business needs that's outside of the beaten track and it's hard to make that thing. It's hard to like glue two things that don't fit together in a way that Ember understands. But the benefit of that is the most of the solutions where you get a senior either temporarily for like a week to fix the thing or like have somebody like yourselves or Simplabs on, you know, on call that if you need us for a month or so to fix a thing, we can do that is that the solutions are transferable and understandable for the juniors. It's usually writing an Ember data adapter that does the weird thing with the API. And then the juniors come in and they just use Ember data exactly as it's described in the guides. And they don't need to know how the weird thing works. It's hidden under a layer that experts look at, you know? And that may seem like a contradiction to what I said earlier on in the conversation, where it's like, oh, you know, you don't want to pull up the, uh, the ladder. You want juniors to be able to become better. But actually, the experience that I have seen where juniors are developing with Ember and then being able to take that knowledge and then apply it to building full applications allows them to solve those more complex things because they know how it should work. They don't know how to make it work, but they know how it should work, where it should fit in, you know? Yeah, I think being productive is important early in your career and then understanding more of the why comes over time as you face a challenge that requires that you look, oh, I want to see behind the green curtain. Exactly. Who is and the wizard? To, it's always Robert, Robert Jackson. <laughs> Robbie as well, but yeah. Robert Jackson. Other, other Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not to be confused with the other Robert William. I'm uh, not the one that commits everything everywhere. <laughs> but, th but this is another aspect of the Ember community as well, where any junior or any, any intermediate that joins any of the Discord channels and says, hey, I want to help out because I want to learn more. They will be inundated with people who want to help them, people who have tasks that are challenging. They'll like... People will offer to like jump in an hour call to like explain a task, to find out what level they're at, see what they could achieve. Like all of our planning calls in Ember, most of them, I think the Ember framework team is the only closed one, but all the other ones are open. You can join the Ember CLI call and not understand half of the things that's being said because that's complicated. Uh, you can join the Ember learning team call and, you know, you can participate even if you don't know what's going on, there are people there that can help you. So it may not be the traditional ladders, the traditional thing that hiring managers would understand where it's like, we use Ember, let's get a senior Ember developer. Like it is, it requires a little bit of training. Ember is JavaScript, let's get a JavaScript person. That's what needs to be communicated to these hiring managers. And you will have a good time if you take that approach. We need good salespeople in the, in the pipeline for that. That's the problem. That's the disconnect. We're all a bunch of engineers evangelizing privately 
Yeah. Can you get LinkedIn to fund this? Can you get LinkedIn to fund this? Because <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not at LinkedIn, so we need to find somebody who can. Well, I was just going to say, yeah. If, if anyone happens to be listening to this and you really like just being an evangelist or advocate, like let us know because we need lots more of that. And and I totally agree that like you know if you know JavaScript at all, you can kind of pick up any of these frameworks. So it's like not important what you've done before. It's just important, you know, what you like and where you're productive and, yeah. and all of that. So it's the old jQuery uh, problem. I learned JavaScript as jQuery because I was manipulating the DOM. And then as that had demanded to get more and more complex within the front end, oh crap, I need to do more than this thing does. And I also need to understand why this thing that seems like it should do the thing isn't. And then boom, but I'm going to, I'm going to what not this thing. Okay. <laughs> what if Yehuda convinces Robert Jackson to go to rust? Then what happens? What do you mean by go to rust? So, you know, Yehuda is doing a bunch within the rust community. If you get Robert Jackson productivity there, we're all writing WebAssembly in five years, right? So, so I'm going to tell you this now, in my prediction, what not in it, uh, Ember CLI in five years is going to be based on Rust. Oh, for sure. Like For sure. Will it still be Broccoli? I think Broccoli might be on the way out with Embroider, which makes me very sad because all oh, of true. Empress is based on Broccoli, but we'll not, we'll not go there quite yet because I'm not ready to, to have that wake. And to let it go? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Parcels um, using SWC, like, come on. Yeah, so this is the thing. It's going to happen. And like, Rust is great. And for build tools and all this sort of stuff, like 100%. I don't believe the hype that says... It's going to be Rust compiled down to Wasm in the front end. I agree with that. I think the barrier to entry is a little much. Like, I don't even agree with TypeScript. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a love hate around that. Well, like, to be honest, like, you know, was it so bad when we just knew our shit and it broke? I don't so, know. So I cannot separate the TypeScript mania from the CoffeeScript mania. It is. I also loved crop coffee script. Oh so, oh no, get out, <sighs> get out. Coffee script was well. I was oh. writing some Python at the time, and it felt like oh, it's well, actually it's, not far. It got us arrow functions. I mean, it did one thing. So this is exactly my point. Coffee script did it served a purpose. You know, thank it for its service. We say goodbye. It it pushed JavaScript a little bit to say, mm -hmm. folks, come on, let's sort this out. You know. TC39, you're sitting on your laurels, you made more mistakes with ES4, or whichever the one that was cancelled, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it was four. So it's like, you made your mistakes, <laughs> let's do something. And they showed us that you could get wildly, wildly different syntax. Use wildly different syntax, but for it to compile down to JavaScript. And then... Okay, well, well hold on. Hold on here. I, I, I have a... I have a bone to pick with that one because yes, that's true. I agree with that. But all of these abstractions let us be lazy and do the latest hotness, right? So yeah, okay, you don't like the syntax, but the fact that CoffeeScript gave you some of the hotness and compiled down and Babel does the same shit. Yeah, Babel so, does the same no shit. No Babel. I mean, it's, yeah. 
Well, this is the thing. It it started that whole thing of what well, it was six to five before it was Babel. You know, it was like, yeah, uh, right. You yeah. know, remember, you know, that's yeah. What the so they could have the Rad logo or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, and this is the thing. Like, it it served a purpose, but Coffee CoffeeScript died because it didn't have buy in from everybody. And Babel is better because you can make a statement like, "I'm okay with." transpiling things that are stage three or above because they'll eventually be part of the platform and I can eventually, with my targets file, drop it, you know? And Evergreen is much more of something that we are going to be able to uh, live with, even though it's almost there. It's just tantalizingly close, the idea of Evergreen. But it's, it's this idea that it's something that's coming down the pipe. Whereas... If you have somebody that's forking off onto a different path, something that will never get included into the official JavaScript, then I just can't get behind it. So you're saying TypeScript is never going to be included? So I refuse to use TypeScript as much as possible. But the day that types are proposed to TC39 as like helpers or whatever the thing is, as like things that either make it go faster or documentation so that, you know, autocomplete, etc. As soon as it starts going through TC39, I'm going to sit up and listen. When it goes to stage three, I will use it 100% of my add-ons. All of my JavaScript will use it. Hmm. So you like the guardrails unless it's vanilla God, uh, vanilla God script, uh, JavaScript. <laughs> but this is, this is the thing. Like decisions that we make in Ember go through a process. Like we had to, we had to talk and talk and talk and decide and figure out and and agree that we were going to allow decorators in Ember because we needed it for the the programming model that we were moving to, but we knew that it was a giant risk because decorators aren't type aren't stage three, so we made a decision. And this is very important when people say, oh, should we use decorators? It's like, what do you mean by should we use decorators? Every decorator that is in Ember right now is going to be officially supported no matter what decorators happen in the future. We're going to support that till the end of time. If you write your own decorator, the semantics could change. Okay. I get, I get this. I think where you're going now then is, is kind of like the commits discussion too, right? So these are some very enforced guardrails and where you're telling everyone who contributes to your project, they need to be type safe. They need to declare all these things or include them or be, have this awareness. I, first of all, I want to say that I'm not like a TypeScript fanboy by any means. It's just that it's all over the place and you encounter it often and you just kind of roll with it. Okay. I'll make it work. And I know how it works now. And I've had to use it a bunch. Um, I get where there are certain situations where this makes sense. But yeah, like for the normal world, like JavaScript is this language. And if we want people to be more like agnostic to frameworks, we should just kick all of that out. Learn the thing that exists and then learn how to make it better. (laughs) Well, so but Microsoft owns everything now, right? (laughs) So they have GitHub. They have NPM, they have VS Code, they have TypeScript. 
So like you kind of see the writing on the wall that TypeScript isn't going anywhere. Like that was my thing with CoffeeScript is like, you know, a couple of places that I don't want to work because you're using CoffeeScript happen to be using CoffeeScript. But like, you know, no one, no one was really mass adopting it. Whereas like TypeScript is a little bit safer because it's backed by a huge corporation who happens to own like 80% of the ecosystem. It's safer, but hey, have you moved your stuff to GitLab yet or what? Why, why would I do that? If you don't want to be owned part by Microsoft. <laughs> Git, or, yeah. So GitHub is, if you want to like, so it's against it, then. I think it's a different thing that Robbie's bringing up here. It's like mm. the, there, was a, there was a pain that you could have felt with CoffeeScript and it did happen when we moved on, mm-hmm. which was it will die on the vine. Like it's not going to make any progress because the people who are backing CoffeeScript are going to go and do different things. And, you know, Microsoft isn't going to go anywhere. Like count the millions of lines of code that are written in TypeScript. This is going to be COBOL. It will, it will last longer (laughs) than JavaScript lasts. It will, it will, it will outlast the, the planet earth. It will be on spaceships going to alpha centauri you know it's, it's it'll be in be some right teslas around. for sure for sure oh for yeah it's it's in spacex there's going to be typescript in spacex like in the rockets anyway but like the problem isn't is it going to die on the vine the problem is the forks and like okay fine we have this decorator thing you know but the 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 fork that i don't like the most is the import exports in TypeScript. They had this thing which was import star from blah, export star from blah. That's non-ESM compliant. They went in their own direction. They didn't go through the standards process. It's non-compatible with ESM and people reading TypeScript have to double take and go, ooh, what is that? And have to then understand how it's going to be compiled out so that they can use it in an ESM world, which we're now, everybody's converting to. Like I said that Ember's gone full modules, Node now does ESM, like all of the the big Node modules are moving ESM only. And it's like, depending on what you use, you can use it in in, uh, CommonJS and use the require stuff. But if you, I don't know exactly what the line is, but if you import or require enough ESM stuff, you suddenly have to move everything to ESM. And it's this kind of migration that's happening slowly over time. But everything that's written in TypeScript is now not compatible for people to read it and know what's going on. And that's like the uh, single example of one of the most egregious things that, frankly, is Microsoft uh, at its own old tricks. Hey, you know, let's go TC39. No, let's do it our own way. And like another thing to consider here as well is like, do you know one of the reasons why Microsoft doubled down so much on TypeScript? Yeah, I don't. Mm-hmm. Did you remember the history of this thing that was going to be Angular Script? Did you hear about this? Mm. I think so. Yeah. When you know Angular One, the disaster like was over. Like they wanted to build this other thing that was like a. A, a different language, a coffee script for JavaScript, specifically for AngularJS. And it was so close to becoming a reality until TypeScript came along. And then they were like, let's do it all in TypeScript. So Angular is all TypeScript now. 
because it allows them to get some of the things that they wanted out of Angular script, but still not be like, you know, hyper specific. You know what I mean? I, I had experience in 1.0 uh, and it was not a pleasant one. The real we Angular? Went, yeah. <laughs> we went to, we did things in Backbone and all that kind of stuff and some React later. Uh, so I know the nightmare was that. And then I basically ignored Angular until about seven. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they were like, we're TypeScript and we do normal things. It's fine. We're approachable. And we put out a new major version every five minutes. <laughs> They're on like 13 now. Yeah, I saw 13, like IE11 breaking on 13. And don't ask me why I know that. Because IE11 is the bane of my current existence. Oh, no. The fact that I've had to regress my career so much that I am debugging IE 11. It's humbling. Let me just, it's humbling. <laughs> and it's not why I'm drinking a lot today. It's not. I feel your pain, by the way. Like one of my first uh, jobs out of college, like 2009, 2010, it was uh, an app for a bank that I can't name uh, that wanted a uh, risk management system. God, risk management systems, they're everywhere for their traders. And it needed to specifically target IE6. Nothing else. Mm. It had to be IE6. And even back yeah. then, that was unreasonable. Like IE8 mm-hmm. was already out. And like IE6 yeah. was in the past. And it like couldn't use anything else. It had to target IE6. It was just like it was a brand new app. It was Greenfield. And it had to target yeah. IE6. Right, right. Well, we we have to talk about some whatnot. So first of all, I did want to ask you, Chris, what the hell else do you do in life? (laughs) What are you interested in? Or are you, you know, what else? So much ga, soccer, (laughs) football. I don't know. I love that you just called it ga. That's very funny. Uh, I know the ga. Yeah. So it's, (laughs) most people call it GAA. Uh, So, Mm. but like you colloquially call it the ga, you know, um, I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not a sports person, so I am not. Mm. I don't follow the sports ball. That's not my thing. Where did you live in Northern England? Uh, I, lived, I stayed I in, in Leeds for a while. Oh no way! I lived in Leeds for seven years. I love Leeds. It's a Leeds, beautiful Leeds town. is incredible. Like I, no word of a lie. I would probably still be living there if it wasn't for Brexit. Hmm. Like, yeah. it's, wah, it's, wah. it's a bit of a complicated situation because my wife's from Northern Ireland. So she mm-hmm. has this dual nationality thing where she's British, but also Irish. So it wouldn't have affected her at all. But I was not British. And I was essentially part of a community that, like, even our area in Leeds was the only place in Leeds that voted leave. So it was like very much a flag that was like, you are not wanted here, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. That's like I would, I would probably have been fine because there's always this unilateral thing between Ireland and England and the UK. Um, but I am very European. I'm very pro-Europe. The EU has done a lot for Ireland and Ireland is very pro-Europe. So that felt, it felt yeah. bad. Like know? the right thing to do. Yeah. That makes sense. But yeah. Well, we don't we don't have to have Leeds United, Manchester United fights. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're Leeds are very good at rugby, though. Uh, I think they're better at rugby league than rugby union. 
Yeah. 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 So Correct. rugby union yeah. is the, the Six Nations is rugby union. I can never remember which one's which. I'm not an expert. Ah, I'm not an expert either, but but uh, <laughs> uh, Dave from the Ember community, uh, Kiwi Up Over, uh, will probably hate me for bringing this up, but he brought it up in a meeting with me today <laughs> that Ireland bet the All Blacks in rugby. And I'm not, a, I'm not a sports ball person, but I know that New Zealand are like the best in rugby. And the fact that Ireland bet them, like even our news presenters were surprised. Like we were all like, what just happened? Hmm, like, wait a minute, what? No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. So what else? You like video games or books or? I, I am a bit of a gamer. Uh, I've got, I'm sure I've got gamer paraphernalia here somewhere, but I did tidy up my desk. Uh, not so long ago. I'm a, a I got very... Stadia recently. Oh, so really? How was it? I like it a lot. I like the fact that, so for me, I can't really be a dedicated gamer. Uh, gamer. So the fact that I can do this across multiple devices is really nice. So you can like nice. do it on a Chromecast on the TV. You can do it on the iPad. You can, you can do it in multiple places. I yeah. really like that. Well, no dedicated device. So I agree with you apart from one thing i am a very dedicated gamer in that i mm -hmm. am a nintendo fanboy and my gaming paraphernalia that i wanted to show you i have a uh, nice <laughs> i have a zelda uh master sword key ring and a little shield as well on my desk i have a switch for those same reasons because zelda you can pick it up I you can you don't have to have a dedicated place that you can game, but you can bring yeah, it with yeah. you. And you like the fact that you can sit there playing Skyrim on an airplane for eight hours yes. crossing the Atlantic. Oh like there's no business playing yep. that game in this day and age because it's like eleven years old yeah. or whatever. It but is. it's amazing though. It's Actually it's still I, fun. I had yeah. never played it back in the day, so mm -hmm. I had a friend gift it to me like three years ago and it was amazing. I mean, on a switch in things. an airplane like a, it's like yes. the amount of hours that you could spend in that game it's just incredible and like you know triple a gamers would be like oh the switch it's terrible it's not powerful enough and like all the games that are coming out are remakes of four or five years old whatever but i didn't get to play them the first time around i'm getting to play the games yep. that i missed on a portable device in a plane. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I think it's designed for us. I yeah. think it's designed for us. Yeah. Although there's the new Metroid that I'm very interested in. Interesting. Are you talking about the Dread one? The the kind of... Yes. The, it's a yeah, halfway it's like house a Metroid. scroller or whatever. Yeah, because there's, there's another Metroid that's like in progress that like has been right. delayed. And then they released a new Metroid in between waiting for the... Haven't they done that? Haven't they done that with Zelda though? The last like five games, they like re they port some and whatever else mm -hmm. as they work on Breath of the Wild. Interesting. Part two. Two. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's the thing. It's like here is the pinnacle game. Yeah. Let's give you some things to keep you involved in the story. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like they did the uh, was it Link's Awakening? Yeah. The Link's Awakening. There's like some mm -hmm. Sky Rule thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or is it Wind Waker? Or is it the Oh, Skyward Sword. Yes, sorry. Wind Waker is the one I didn't get to play because I didn't have GameCube. Hyrule Warriors or whatever. That's one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that one's I good. I played the demo. That's just like a battle game or something, right? Yeah, or... but I played the demo. It's actually pretty fun. Yeah. I Again, so 
So my kids are, uh, I had two under two for a while there. My, my eldest is just over two now. Mm. I'm in the battleground right now, so I have very little time for anything other than dealing with kids and like household stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. there is a bunch of games. The fact that I haven't done Skyward Sword, so it's a mainline Zelda game that I could buy right now and be playing like that is that's pain for me. Like I should be playing that like as soon as I get off the phone from you guys. Yeah, but there's there's no horses like <laughs> It was a departure from, you know, main Zelda. I was not a fan. It was just, it didn't feel right. Interesting. But it also, when it came out, you had to play it on Wii. So you had to yeah, play it like yeah. this. And I uh, like to just sit and, you know, like use my thumbs. So um, I could be interested in playing it now. Do, do you guys have an Oculus? No. No. I don't. Uh, my brother-in-law has something. I don't know if it's the Oculus or the, the other one, the... Steam one, Valve one. What's the other thing? Yeah, I think I yeah. think it is that something like that. So I got it with business purposes. To be honest, I want to try workplace and see <laughs> if I can scroll like scale it out. So another ship shaper. He's also very into games and has one. And we're like, okay, cool. We're gonna do our next one on one in workplace. But I will say, last weekend I got the Vader game. Vader game? And play like it's like three episodes. Yeah, there's a Darth Vader. No, there's a few Star Wars VR games. I don't know if you like Star Wars, but I if do. you do, it is very immersive and incredible. Mm. It was so I just spent a couple of hours in the bedroom with like a big space, and you're I don't know, you're just like stealing stuff, and then they like invade your ship, and like people are on your you know, stormtroopers approach you, and at first you're Whoa, I'm thrown back. Mm-hmm. This is crazy, but also awesome. And then you have some lightsaber fights. It's highly recommended. So I know I'm going to enjoy that for sure. Like, I yeah. I desperately want to try the whole VR thing. And like the whole immersion thing is going to grab me. Like, yeah. I don't need that much to get immersed in a game. And for that reason, I never played World of Warcraft because I know that as soon oh, yeah. as I try that, I'll be gone. Like somebody has yeah, to take over same. my Ember add-ons yeah. because I will be gone for a <laughs> decade and it will be like, yeah. What I appreciate about this game, this game is really compartmentalized. It really is. It's like I said, I finished it in two hours. Perfect. I finished episode one yeah. in two hours. There's three episodes. I finished the first one, two hours. Good to go. The lightsaber fight at the end, I should be working out more because it was just like a workout. Dude. It really was. I was like, wow. I want to do, what is it called? Saber? Beat Saber? Beat Saber looks. Oh, yeah. I've heard about incredibly that. Incredibly fun. So it's like two lightsabers and you have to like, it's it's a yeah. dance game with like, you have to like cut these boxes yeah. in certain yes. directions. It just looks so much fun. I just want to play it, but I A, don't have the time and B, do not have the money for an extra device right now. Like, hooey. Well, I think Simp Labs needs to have uh, all their meetings in <laughs> VR is what I'm hearing. Interestingly. Yeah, yeah. Or do you want to develop a VR app? I mean, because if you do, you're going to need a device to try I, it out. I have a office setup budget. Like I've been working for Simp Labs for three plus years now, but I never used the office setup budget. 
if I could convince that it's for my office, I, I don't know, I might be able to wangle it, you know? Think of all the code you can fit on a VR screen. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, all that's going to have to be written in Rust, you know? Mm-hmm. Listen. <laughs> yeah. I have a call out to Yehuda right now. Make it happen. <laughs> I don't know what it yeah. is. He'll know. He'll know. I just know that you're, yeah, he'll yeah. know, he'll know, he'll know what's needed. Yeah. We can That's talk about it on Twitter. come up with thoughts. If I was on Twitter, we'd talk about it on <laughs> you're Twitter. You're not on Twitter? So I quit everything, yeah, I quit everything social, like now, two and a half years ago. Wow. I'm only on LinkedIn, which is fake yeah, social. Yeah. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. So I am contemplating putting a message in my Facebook and saying, I am deleting this account in a month's time. Because I very much do not agree with Facebook and all of their stuff. But Twitter, it's like, it's the fire hose. You know, we're in the tech industry. We have to be on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. I do enough Twitter for, for both of us. I just manage the ship shape oh, account. Please tell me you like share good tweets. I, I asked for the login and he was like, no, not necessary. You don't need this. It's fine. I'm like, okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe. Uh, feel free to reach out to us via all the things. Uh, catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.